I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Giro d'Italia Stage 14, the ITT, brought to you by Lacole. We're going to be recapping that stage and then previewing after that the men and women's Tour of Flanders. Obviously, it's a monument. We've got to do a proper preview. There'll be timestamps in the show notes or the YouTube video description for you if you want to go to wherever you need to be. Uh, but as you know, our Giro show is made possible by our partner, Lacole. They produce performance cycling apparel, road only, focusing only on making you faster on the road. If you want to check out their kit, you can find them at www.lacole.cc. The link is in the show notes and the video description. Enter code LR015 for 15% off. That's all caps LR015. Available that code just for the Giro d'Italia. Moving on to stage 14, Benji. It's going to be new. There was going to be GC action. And there was also some pretty heavy favorites at the front, uh, at the top of this uh, pile. And we, just at the front, at the outset, will say we're not going to do it chronologically like we do for a normal stage. Last ITT that we reviewed, we just basically say the results and get into it in the talking points. It's too hard to remember how the stage kind of folded out because it's not a normal stage. Um, but who, who were our favourites? Who were your pizza slice men, Benji, uh, on Twitter the, yesterday? So yesterday I gave three pizza slices to Filippo Ganna because I believe that despite this Baku having more hills and being somewhat longer, he would still be marginally better than all the rest. I decided to give Dennis a second chance this year and put him at the best rider at two pizza slices together with Mikael Bjerg and Chad Hager. Hager didn't actually try anything today, so it looked like he's saving energy to work for Kelderman in the coming days. McNulty had one pizza slice together with Almeida, Roshkov, Dijent, and Sobrero, who is that NTT guy that showed up at the first ITT for NTT. Well, obviously, because he's the NTT guy. And... Did really well, so I was like, maybe as a outsider for potential top five, top ten ish, he would be up there, and he somewhat delivered today. But those were my pizza slices. I do not remember who you picked for today. Uh, I'm not sure who I went with either. So I might have gone with, I think initially Almeida and then Ganner or Bjerg. Uh, I can't remember exactly who. I probably got it wrong. Um, obviously Ganner was the, the short favorite, and I thought Bjerg was. I think my bet was Bjerg was going to get top three. Uh, and he kind of disappointed today, actually. But moving on to the stage, the man, the powerhouse, some say the best time trial rider in the world, Filippo Ganna, came out and won again and won his, I think, fifth or sixth TT on the trot. The last TT he lost was in Velta San Juan back in January. You know who he lost to. Um, but yeah, he set a time of 42.40 on this 34.1 kilometer rolly course. There's that 12% one kilometer long climb in the first third that really slowed people down and made pacing important. He destroyed that climb too. He did really, it was funny seeing Gunnar Benji going past, I think, Caicedo, um, 
it was on education first on that climb and it's like a 35 kilo weight difference and kind of went past him so quickly uh and then yeah he just maintained it to the whole time i'm not sure whether he um it was first in all the splits he didn't win by that much though he, he beat dennis by 26 seconds a pretty healthy margin but relative to the amount he's beaten dennis at imola or in the stage one tt where i guess that doesn't count because the wind affected dennis a lot but it was a lot closer today. Uh, and w- was there any moment, Benji, during the TT where you thought Dennis, where it might actually be close between him and Ghana? Uh, not really, to be honest. I somewhat had a feeling already before the TT started that Ghana was going to be the guy that just wins it blatantly. And once we saw the initial time check where the difference was quite limited, I still believed that Dennis was better on the climb itself compared to Ghana, and on that note, would lose more time to Ghana on the flatter sections afterwards. So I was preparing for Ghana potentially being better in the second part of the ITT because it's flatter than Dennis, who is potentially better on the hill start, which is that 1k hill that we spoke about earlier on. So I didn't really have any doubt, not going to lie. Yeah, and I think Ghana beat Dennis by one second on the on the climb or to the first intermediate checkpoint i should say he's 1107 he was one second ahead of dennis 1108 and mcnulty was only five seconds behind ganner on the climb and as i'm looking at it now it does look like yes uh ganner set the quickest time in all of the intermediate checks so yeah dominant dominant performance well paced once again but closer and i would be interested to see and if he did do it if he beat dennis on a one hour and five minute course like Yorkshire, I think he'd have to call in the best Ghana, the best time trials in the world. I know a lot of people already uh, do call in that. But just going through the, the list for the stage and then we'll go through the GC positions as well because that's another whole aspect of this ITT. First, Filippo Ghana. Second, Dennis. The i got to say, a good performance today. He's got to be happy with that. And if it wasn't for... A, Ghana being there, Dennis 26 seconds behind Ghana. Dennis then beat McNulty, who was third, by oh, 33 seconds or more, 43 seconds. McNulty was third, a minute and nine behind Ghana. And I'm sure Dennis is probably looking at that performance and thinking that would win a lot of Grand Tour stage ITTs on this profile, that performance. And just a better guy today, Filippo Ghana, on his own team. Thomas de Gent, fourth. One minute and 11 back. Uh, Benji calls him out with a pizza slice. Pretty good pick from Benji there. Joseph Czerny for CCC came fifth. A minute and 11 back. So pretty close with McNulty and... Uh, sorry, minute 16 back. So pretty close with McNulty and DeHent. He did well in the first stage TT from memory, I think, Benji. Top 10 performance there as well. Juan Almeida in the Maglia Rosa backed it up after stage one. Sixth a minute and 31 behind Ghana and better than all the other GC contenders and 22 seconds behind McNulty the in third, who's probably the other main GC contender there. Seventh, Tanel Kangert, who's been kind of anonymous this Giro so far. Pretty good performance from him. Castroviejo, eighth. Kelderman, ninth. One minute and 47 back and 16 seconds behind Almeida and Tratnik, tenth. So that's the top 10 
for the stage. Uh, but let's let's dive in, I think, and have a look at what happened with the the GC men. But before then, any real surprises for you in that top ten, Benji? Um, pretty pretty normal to me. More just confirmation there of Almeida and Cherney's TT ability. Yeah, I agree. I believe that Cherney was a rider that I was initially looking at for my pizza slices as well, but then I saw the accents on his name and I took him out to replace it with. The name with the accents in my tweet and I forgot to add him so <laughs> that's why he didn't get pizza slices today but um in the end Cherney has been a bit inconsistent over the years but I'm glad that on these ITTs and Grand Tours he keeps doing really well. McNulty I think we said in the Giro preview or I think I mentioned him as my favorite in the Giro preview two weeks ago for this stage well looking back that's probably a bit trying to be contrarian versus a Ghana. And I think you tried that as well by saying someone else, but maybe you said Thomas back in the day. I don't remember. So he can't really compete here because he's not here anymore. Dalakangit, I wanted him to do something more than what he's done so far in this, in this Giro. I feel like he is good at these ITTs that are rolling hills, but I believe he can do better in other stages as well. I expect him in more breakaways so far. So it's not really a surprise that he's up here in this time trial. It's more of a surprise that we haven't seen him as much in this whole Giro to me. And regarding GC, we've seen that Kelderman is doing a really good job here. And I think we all kind of expected that, but we also expected the gaps to be a bit closer together, at least I did. So uh, what are your initial thoughts on the GC changes? Well, before we get to the GC, I want to talk about a GC man that isn't here. Grant Thomas, I think if he was here today, it would have been an Ineos 1-2-3 lockout of the stage podium. Um, and I think Thomas, he was my pick for the stage win in the preview. I think he could have gone close to pushing uh, Ghana for this stage. So, But getting into the, the GC guys that are actually here, we're talking about um, their finish times, just the GC riders only. This is from La Flamme Rouge. Helpfully put this together straight after the stage. Must follow on Twitter, La Flamme Rouge. McNulty first, 43-49. Almeida, 44-11. So that's, oh, I need, I need to get the time gaps there. But Kelderman, 44-27. Gagenhart, 45-04. Micah, 45-17. Bill Bow, 45-33. Not great from him. Nibali 45-34, so middle of the pack. Masnada 45-40, Postivivo 45-41, Fulsang 45-53, two minutes and four seconds behind Brandon McNulty. Conrad 46-11, bad TT from him too. Jai Hindley 46-19, and I guess Pedrero 48-04. I'm not sure if he counts the GC contender. Um, so. A lot of movement, particularly from one rider, Brandon McNulty, moving up from 11th to 4th with that excellent TT performance. Uh, so now the new GC is this. Juan Almeida, well, he's still in first. He cements his place in the Malia Rosa, extending his lead. Kelderman now 56 seconds behind him. Bill Bale doesn't move out of third, but loses a lot of time to both Kelderman and Almeida uh, over a minute and a half, I think, to both of them at least. He's 2 minutes and 11 back. McNulty, as I said, into fourth, 2.23 behind Almeida. Nibali stays at fifth. I think this was a good day for Nibali, by the way, but we'll get to that, Benji, because you're the chief of this fan club. 2 minutes and 30 back 
from Almeida. Micah moves up actually into sixth, 233. Pozzavivo from fourth to seventh, 233 back as well. Masnada up to eighth, 311 back. Conrad loses three spots, sixth to ninth, 317 back. Jai Hindley loses 3-2, 333. And then, yeah, Gagenhart, 344, 11th. And Fulsang goes from 10th to 12th, 408 back. So a lot of movement, but then no, no movement in positions-wise in the first three riders, one, two, three, Almeida, Kelderman, and Bill Bowett. Nibali, Benji, consistent as always. Is this just job done today? Just neither good nor bad, just got the job done. I don't know. I feel like it's a bit under-mediocre for uh, Nibali. Nibali should be a bit closer in my eyes. He is around Micah, around Pozzo Vivo in this time trial. I believe that he can do better and should do a bit better. He is usually within fourth place to like top 15 somewhere in these ITTs and Grand Tools, and that's considering there is better competitors sometimes so i feel like he should have done a tiny bit better personally yeah i mean you're probably right and i think he's not as good as he was in 2013 to 16 that being said he's just he's so consistent he doesn't have bad bad days where full saying four minutes and eight back i mean his fuck his euro is pretty much over unless he does something obscene in week three whereas nearly just keeps himself in contention so he's like well Sure, um, not where I want to be, maybe ideally, but he's still. If you if he's not counting Almeida as a genuine contender in the big mountains, which I still think is correct, by the way, then he's what a minute and thirty four behind Kelderman. So that is not insurmountable if he's just targeting Kelderman on the big Stelvio like stages, which Stelvio looks like it's happening. So I think Nibali's not. I wouldn't be too concerned about him. And I still think he's, I still think he's the favourite to win the Giro, to be honest. But we'll see what happens on Piancavallo tomorrow. I think Piancavallo will suit Kelderman more than Nibali, but that's a big, big, sorry, a big difference to the big calorie stages that we're looking at in the Stelvio. Um, but yeah, what do you think about then now, Benji, seeing Conrad's performance, seeing Micah doing a little bit better? There was talk on Twitter, I think from Mihai, that they should have dropped back Conrad to help Sagan in the stage yesterday, Pool, Do you think, what do you think about putting all your eggs in two GC baskets when you've got Sagan in fighting for the uh, the points jersey behind? Do you think there's, do you think the GC riders just get too much preference over the stage hunters and the sprinters um, in these Grand Tours? Someone who's gone from 7th to 10th or something, on GC, his his race being preference to Peter Sagan fighting for the Chicliamino jersey. I think it's a bit double-sided. You've got yesterday, I think, Mikhail and Chris Horner who brought this point forward. And uh, that Twitter account, Peter Sag fan. Um, I think that the Peter Sag fan one is kind of biased, but the other two are pretty respectable people and usually have a pretty good analysis on cycling itself. Now, what I see in this is you've got the group with Conrad and Micah sitting a good 20 seconds before the group of Sagan. And the gap goes out to 38 seconds and only comes closer down the moment that Sagan starts attacking with the hand and so forth. So it's something that you can't anticipate. You can't anticipate the hand to work with you. So they could have lost 40 seconds and not 20 seconds if they drop back. Additionally, you've got 
Sagan, who is behind, is supposedly in Chiclamino after that stage if he gets first or second, which he would if he brings Ballerini to the front. He'd probably be first or second or end up on the podium somewhere near that and would most likely end up in Chiclamino at the end of the stage yesterday. But we've got two more stages that are coming that one of which suits DeMar perfectly. So he's most likely going to win that if we extrapolate from the performances of the last few weeks. And on the other one, you've got hills on it, but it's only one of the two hills so compared to the stage yesterday where there were two hills and on that stage there's one hill in the last 50 kilometers there's some hills before that obviously but i feel like there's like 40k in between of each hill so they can come back with a demar train i would expect so i'd be expecting demar to be able to survive that one and sprint for it as well so you've got two sprint stages that are leaning towards demar as well so i believe that keeping mike and conrad up there were the wise decision, even if you know that they're not amazing at time trialing, they can always have a good day. Chiclamino is worth something. It's definitely worth something. But if you can get two people in the in the top 10 region to try and get one of them on the podium in the third week, I think a podium in a Grand Tour is much more worth it than the Chiclamino shirt, of which Demar is still looking like the absolute favorite, even if Sagan ends up winning the stage yesterday. So in my opinion, it's it's a good discussion point. You can go either way, but if I'm the DS in the car behind, I'm not daring to make that decision. I'm not daring to say, yeah, GC guys, just just go, go ahead and wait. Just go ahead and wait once again. Because the discussion point was not to have just Conrad wait. Discussion point was to have both of them wait. So that's where the issue lies as well, because you have to choose either to have them both drop or you have to choose between the two riders that are fighting for GC, both of them and say well you 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 need to wait but the other guy can stay uh yeah i, I feel like he can't do that as a director of sportive and yeah that will cause disrespect to the two gc riders up there they're putting all effort the whole last two weeks to lose a limited amount of time in gc and then you're just gonna throw away 20 seconds if the plan fails here so i feel like it's a discussion point that is maybe a bit forced to my opinion. And Conrad so, nearly won the stage anyway yesterday. Yeah, so, indeed. Exactly. Like, they had a good chance of winning the stage with Conrad being able to sit in, and he won the bunch sprint in the stages before. So I think it's justifiable what Bora did do yesterday. It's just interesting to see, and we'll be, you know, this is going to be a big discussion point that I'll get into in the tour next year. We'll get into with Juan Panada, Jumbo Visma, you know, how much should these generational talents sub- subvert their ambitions for, um, sometimes not you know mediocre gc men um roglic wasn't mediocre but conrad is not the the favorite roglic was but just reminding you before we go into the stage 15 preview now uh, where where i see this gc position you've got almeida more the puncher good time trialist unproven in the big big mountains and lost a little bit of time on the etna stage 56 ahead of kelderman kelderman looking like the swiss army knife from the Netherlands who can do it all and actually attack and gain time on the Etna stage. So I think on those mountaintop finishes, probably the strongest rider in the race right now where it's just a roll up, pretty easy stage, and then bang, a long 18 to 22K climb. And then Bilbao is third, a further minute and four back. And from third to about ninth, it's a minute covering all those riders. So they're all very close together. 
Kelderman's now got this proper minute and a half advantage on all of them, and that's why he probably is in the betting markets the the favourite for for GC marginally or at the same odds of as Almeida. And you've now got McNulty and Bilbao third and fourth, who didn't look as good on the Etna stage. And I'm expecting Micah Nibli Potavivo to then be leapfrogging them, if not tomorrow, then on week three certainly. And I don't know who's going to win out of those out of those riders. I think it's going to be a, a fierce battle between Kelderman defending his minute and thirty lead against Nibli, Micah, and. Pots of Evo. Maybe I'm underrating Almeida, Bilbao, and McNulty in the big mountains, but I think based on what these riders have done previously, that's just the way I look at how this Giro is shaping up. But tomorrow is a much must-watch stage for a number of reasons, and I think it will be could be just as good as the Etna stage, if not better. It's 185Ks, and you'll remember every day when we did the Tour de France stage previews, we spoke about the points jersey battle. And I think tomorrow could be another interesting one there because you've got Falstad uphill for the first 54Ks. Then you have a Category 2 climb, Sela Kianzutan, 9.6Ks at 5.6%. I think Sagan could, can get over that climb. And then you have an intermediate sprint straight afterwards at 83Ks. Now the question is, is Bora strong enough or willing to commit their riders to holding a break? to get Sagan and then dropping Damar on that cat too to get Sagan intermediate sprint points with 83Ks. I don't think they are, and I don't think they're strong enough. So I think the best option for Bora is to get Sagan in the break uh, tomorrow. So I'm expecting him to try and get in the breakaway, and it's whether Arno, Damar, and FDJ are able to mark that. So it should be pretty interesting, that battle. But aside from that, after that cat too, you've got a valley, short cat, a uh, short climb, 3Ks at 6.4%. Then the Forcella di Monte Rest, 7.4Ks at 7.5%, another Category 2 climb, which, by the way, is the second highest category climb in the Giro, just reminding you. It's the equivalent of the Cat 1 in the Tour de France. Long descent, then a valley of 20Ks, and then we've got 1.8Ks at 7.1%, then the second intermediate sprint with bonification seconds at the top of that, then basically a 1K plateau, and then another Cat 2 climb, 9.2 Ks at 5%. Now, I don't think any of those climbs are difficult enough to create any GC moves. The most difficult one is in the middle, 7.5% at 7 Ks, but it's not particularly long. Nibali lost Giacone today, who didn't look that good. I don't really see any GC action happening there. It's more a calorie, just calories are getting burned on those climbs. But then again, they're not doing them at a high pace as compared to the Tour. After that last cat two, Descent for about 25 kilometers, and then the Piancavallo climb, category one, 14.3 Ks at 8%. And I believe that, well, I believe that there could be some steep parts in there, but they're not at the end. So the steep parts are in the first half of the climb, and then actually the last, last kilometer or so is about 3%, falls flat uphill just about. And yeah, I think it's an interesting sort of climb, an interesting stage. Um, do you, what do you expect to happen with the GC men, Benji? Do you think there could be a long range attack tomorrow? Uh, I don't think so. I feel like the climbs within the stage itself are too far from each other. There's too big of a gap in between. And additionally, there's a too large of a gap between the second last climb and the actual finished climb, the Piancavallo climb. So 
an attack by a GC member, not happening. Also, who's going to control the race? I don't think anybody, so I'm expecting a breakaway to win the stage blatantly. NTT probably won't be pacing the way they did in the hill stages. And Trek lost another guy today at the start of the day. Ciccone is out with acute bronchitis or something. So he's not riding tomorrow. Brambilla fell on his, on his arm or something. I don't know what, what Brambilla had as a low-key injury after his performance, but he's been pretty weak since that crash. And they've lost waning, so Trek's relatively out of that pacing contention as well. Sunweb's still there. They've got a team that can help. They've lost Matthews though, so they're also one man down. And then maybe Bora. You've got Fabro, but outside of that, I don't think they're going to be pacing all day once again. So Breakaway is most likely winning on Pianca Valo for me. And if I have to give a name, Attila Walter. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Walter, if he, from a break... We've not seen him all Giro. He did a pretty good TT today, so his legs must be okay. He's not been in any breaks in this Giro. Maybe he's been saving the legs for a stage like this to really make it count. But yeah, he has to try and get in the break tomorrow, um, and I really hope he does. And if he does, he could definitely he'd be my favourite to win the stage. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that break will get the license if. De Koenig are having to pace um, to keep Almeida in the pink jersey. It depends who gets in the break. It also depends if NTT want to try something again for Pozzadivo. We've seen NTT working to thin the peloton out before. Um, but again, I'm not the breakaway whisperer. I don't have a good handle on whether the break will go. I'll have a better idea when it actually does go and seeing what the peloton does and who's in that break. It all depends on whether maybe... FDJ try and pace backs again and then they keep it close up to that intermediate sprint and then by that time you're well into the stage then it doesn't have time to accumulate a lot of minutes. That sort of thing can affect whether the breakaway really gets uh, a big license because FDJ might be doing the pacing that the GC teams wouldn't want to do. Who I think will do the best out of the GC contenders on this climb and maybe and gain time, it's hard to say because unlike Etna, the, the steep parts are at the start. But I think Wilco Kelderman is going to be the strongest out of the GC guys tomorrow. I wouldn't be surprised if they all roll over the line together just because of the way this climb is. But, yeah, I think Kelderman will be the strongest. I wouldn't be surprised if he attacks in the eighth kilometre of the climb with 5Ks to go when there's a steep pit part. And I don't think anyone can go with him. Maybe there was a little bit of complacency in Stage 3 where they will ask Kelderman will let him go. Um, but yeah, what do you think, Benji? Do you think do you think the the way this climb pans out that no one will attack, or you think do you think as an as a guy following Nibali closely that Nibali should be trying to do something tomorrow to put pressure on on Kelderman or Almeida? I think that on these kind of finishes, it will be hard for Nibali to make a real gap on the others. This is a major climb that Kelderman has not shown weakness on yet this year, at least. So I believe that Kelderman will indeed be one of the strongest in that in that GC group. We'll probably see a larger gap than expected, considering there's not many teams to control it here. So I believe that the gap between the GC favorites might be higher than we're thinking at this very moment. But we got to keep in mind, I think Nibali's blatantly not having this kind of finish right now. And I think he's going to be better in the 
multi-mountain stages in the last week where there's multiple mountains to try and cause some chaos and to attack on a stage like the Stelvio if that happens the way it is, which it is looking like at the very moment, then that will fit him more than just one climb at the end. So Kelderman, probably one of the best GC guys on that day, but I also think that Almeida will lose time. He has been, been losing time on every climbing stage in this whole Giro. And therefore, I think that Almeida will lose time. How far is he ahead in GC right now? 56 seconds. That will be hard to, to lose. I don't think Almeida is going to lose pink on Piancavallo, which we spoke about at the start of the week. We spoke that he would most likely lose it on Piancavallo. But I think we're kind of underrating Almeida's climbing. He's not that terrible. He can lose 20 seconds, 25 seconds on some mountain stages, but... It's going to be hard for people that are on three minutes now to come close to Almeida at the end of this Giro. So there, Nibali will need some real chaos in the third week to, to gain back two minutes 30. I'm not going to lie. I'm starting to get worried about my pick, but I'm still following him. He was on a good four minutes or so that, that 2016 Giro. So that year he came back. This year he can do it as well. McNulty's probably going to lose time. So I see him dropping behind Nibali again. And Bilbao, he was... Bilbao will lose time. Do you think so? Positive. Yeah, it depends how aggressively they're riding, but he rode in with Almeida on Etna. I know it's, that's over a week ago, almost two weeks now. Um, but it depends. Yeah, this climb's not as hard as Etna. I don't know. Uh, it's, I think I think it's clear to me that Micah, Nibali, Pozzavivo are about the same ability on finishes like this. Kelderman's probably better or is better. I think Conrad's going to lose time as well, which makes kind of what strengthens the argument that Bora maybe should have just ridden all in for Micah or Sagan. But Almeida reminds me a lot of Danilo De Luca. He he actually won a Giro d'Italia, surprisingly, Danilo De Luca. And I'm not saying, obviously, that's a different era. I'm talking about style of rider. De Luca won Giro dell'Emilia, classics man, pretty good sprint. Um, but not a pure GC guy either, but he'd hold on in the mountains. And I think there's a video in 2005 where he was holding on. Uh, I got planned on Gavia. Oh, no, not on Gavia, sorry. But anyway, he he's kind of like Almeida. And if you just ride smart like Almeida probably does and ride within yourself, then, yeah, you might lose only 20 seconds. And I don't think he's losing pink tomorrow. That's why all those bonus seconds do matter. And, yeah, Kelderman would have to launch a very long-range attack and Almeida would have to crack pretty badly to lose a minute on a climb which isn't as hard as Etna, where on Etna, where it was complete chaos and, yeah, Kelderman only gained, I think, uh, 24 seconds on him. The big difference, though, tomorrow, which you've got to watch, is they'll be burning a lot more calories than on Etna. So bear that in mind, Etna was easy, right? Pretty easy stage, a few little rollers, and then they banged... Etna, relative to tomorrow where they're doing a fair few climbs, proper climbs beforehand, and they have two full weeks of racing in their legs. So that is what you have to bear in mind, that gaps can get accentuated if people aren't fueling right. But that's Giro Stage 15 preview. As you know, you can probably tell we're pretty pretty excited for it. Uh, and then we're into the second rest day. Thanks to Lecol for supporting the podcast for our Giro d'Italia series, making it possible for us to do this. But moving on now to the Ronde of Vlander and preview for men and women. We'll have timestamps for both. Absolutely stacked field. 
for both the races pretty much and I'm so excited for it. I can't, I, Antwerp to Oudenard, 243Ks, goes from the centre, is it the centre of Belgium, Benji? You're the expert, like the centre of Belgium in the north and then it goes, heads west to Oudenard and the first 87Ks are pretty much flat and that that's where I'm going to hand over to Benji because as you know in Ronde von Landeren, series of climbs in this 244K race, none of which I can pronounce correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... That's not that's not a lie. <laughs> anyway, the stage starts. It's uh, 243 kilometers, and the first 80 is somewhat unimportant. We don't really see much action there. I'm not expecting too much there either way, but then we start the actual cobble sectors. You've got cobble sectors in this race, and you've got cobble bergs is what they are called, small cobble climbs of a good 700 to... 1,500 meters, somewhere in between, sometimes much shorter, actually. So maybe I'm <laughs> extrapolating a bit just for uh, for the sakes of being a Flemish race. Anyway, we start 87k in the race with the first two cobble sectors, Lippenhoverstraat and the Paddenstraat. Then we start the Kattenberg after 100k. That is the first berg. And then another... Wow. <laughs> In between a berg and like an uphill street that is laid with cobbles, the Holloweg. And the first real action, as in the first real meeting of a very important moment in this race, is the Aude Quartermont in the middle of the race, 120 kilometers in, blatantly in the middle. That's one of the most important climbs in this parkour, together with the Paterberg. Towards the end of this route, you've got the combination of both, but I'll get into that in a second. After the Aude Quartermont, you go to the Corticair, which is a normal hill, a small hill, that is not laid up with cobbles. This is basically in the middle of the stage of the race. The, then we start plenty of hills following each other. So Eikenberg, then the Wolvenberg, then the Holloweg, Haaghoek, which is one of the more known cobble sectors in Flanders. Pretty long one as well, I think. 1.5 to 2k or even longer. But it's also not very good streets to ride on. It might be punctury there. Then the Leeberg and Berendris, those are climbs without cobbles. The Valkenberg, same thing, without cobbles. And then there's a bit of a, a plateau section because the Valkenberg just goes up and they don't go down from there. You've got like 20 kilometers or like 10 kilometers on a plateau section. I'd say 20 kilometers with like one hill in between, the Kanadiberg, which is a steeper one, but also not a deadly one. I think the real action is going to happen when we go on the Outer Quartermont with 60k to go. Usually with the Tour of Flanders, you'd have the Muur van Gerardsbergen halfway the race. I think it was taken out this year. I don't know the reason. I, I've, I've, there's beef? There's beef, I think, between Flanders Classics and the Council because Flanders Classics want the Council or whatever you call your like local districts to pay, I thought, 50k euro to have the, the Muur in the race. That's what I remember. Really? Uh, a while ago. That's crazy. Yes, yeah, a long-running thing. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, sorry if it's not, but uh, that was... There, there definitely was a dispute about its inclusion um, a while ago. So, yeah, that's that's why I guess it's not in the race. But, yeah, continuing on with the, the parkour. Yes, I think the real action is going to start this time around with about a good mm, 60 kilometers to go, the Outer Quartermont once again, and then the Paterberg. So the first time we do both of these together, there could be early attacks, there could not be. Sometimes we just have blatant tinning down of the group on these but i do think that we'll see some earlier attacks this year it's one of the last races of the season 
And yeah, I expect some early reaction. Koppenberg after that, Steenbeek 3, Steinberg, which is known as the Bonenberg, because Bonen went to attack them on the right of the road in that little uh, side section on the Steinberg every single time during the Tour of Flanders and every single race that had the Steinberg. So that's pretty cool. It was also earlier in the race in the past, which caused people to try and test their legs early on in the Tour of Flanders to know where they're going to be towards the end. I think Van Mark is going to attack on the Tijenberg. He always does as well, so go ahead and uh, just wait for it. I know it's going to happen. Then we've got the Oudestraat and the Kreisberg and the Holtond, which is uh, some hills in between, but the main action once again comes with the last ascension of the Oudequaremont and the Paterberg, and that lies with a good 20 kilometers to go, so that's probably where we'll see the action. That's also where Betio launched away last year on the Autoquademont, then leading into the Paterberg, surviving that, with a gap on the group behind. Then we've got a flat section to the line, the last 14 kilometers blatantly flat, riding into Audenarde. So all in all, a very, very difficult parkour, with plenty of cobbles climbs and cobble sections. But I believe that, I don't know, it felt so much better with the Mude van Gerard, being a climb where the initial action was made with already 100k to go. That's also where Gilbert rode away, a few years back, the the one time he won the Tour of Flanders, who are the riders that you think are going to be the most important ones to look at in the Ronde van Vlaanderen? Yeah, I'll run through the favourites or the main contenders from each team, and then we might dive into why we think they could could do a good job. EF Pro Cycling, obviously, Betiol won this race. He's there with Van Marker, probably as the second foil for EF. De Kearney Quickstep, their favourite is Alaphilippe, but they've also got, obviously, Lampard, Seneschal, Stibar, and Askren, all of whom could also win the race. So all of them have to be mentioned. Only probably Trace Davenens and De Klerk are there as purely as helpers. Lotus Sudal riding for John Degenkolb. Ejdoua Le Mondial, Oliver Narsen, pretty much entirely. Um, would be cool to see Stein Vandenberg doing something. Jumbo Visma, their man's Wild Van Aert, is the favourite for the race just ahead of Alpes and Phoenix favourite, Mathieu van der Poel. So they're going head-to-head once again. This is pretty much all the guys we saw at Gent-Wevelhen before. Um, but yeah, they've, we'll get into their teams in a bit. Bora don't really have a strong rider because Sagan is at the at the Giro. It'd be cool to see what Daniel Oss could do riding for his purely for his own ambitions. Kind of keen to see that. CCC, it's, it's Trentin. Trek Segafredo, it's Mads Pedersen once again, probably Jesper Sturven and Turns, maybe Turns probably helping. Sturven's a second-tier favourite behind Pedersen. Groupama FDJ is all about Stefan Kuhn. Nils Pollitt, cool to see what he could do at ISU uh, after that Paris-Roubaix performance a few years ago. And they're the main favourites, really. I can't really see anyone else apart from Soren Kran Andersen at Sunweb. Um with Teich Benoit there, Kranderson's probably their favourite, Christoph at UAE, and Kwiatkowski, and maybe Rowe at Ineos Grenadiers. Uh, and Nicky Terpster's riding for Total, Team Total Direct Energy. I don't, he's not a favourite, but just wanted to shout him out after his crash. So they're, they're the main favourites. I don't think I've, I've missed anybody, Benji, but going, correct me if I have in your response, but going to the, the top tier favourites, they're both $4 each, pretty much equal Van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel. Do you think it's that clear a race that they're the two clear-cut favourites with Pedersen third favourite at about 11 to 12? I believe that those two are a clear favourite, but I wouldn't put Pedersen on third. And that is because I believe that 
the Tour of Flanders is still a harder race than Peterson has proven so far. I could compare it with Herardsbergen. He missed the right split there, which is the uh, last stage in Bing Bang Tour, by the way. And therefore, I believe that Tour of Flanders is still a harder thing for him to do. I don't think he's going to be bad at it. I just believe that there's going to be riders that are doing better. And I'd even dare to put Alaphilippe in third, to be blatantly honest. But he came second in 2018. What do you say? And I agree yeah, with you, by but... the way. It's a different It's a different start list. And you want to talk about maybe remind people that not all start lists are created equally. Yeah, and Peterson, in that year that he got second, he did so by launching early and being in front of everybody before the actual hills were coming. So on the path to the bank and so forth, he had a gap on the others. And therefore, he has a bit of an advantage. And this year, people are going to respond to Peterson if he makes a move like that. In previous years, in that 2018 one, he was not the rider that people were being like, oh, maybe I should respond to Peterson if he attacks. He's the rider I'll mark today. Right now, he's going to be marked by people, and therefore he is most likely not going to get such an easy uh, line away. Thing is, I'm scared of Betiol, and that is for the exact reason I'm explaining right now. We're all talking about Van Aert and Van Der Poel. Last year, we were all talking about plenty of people. And because last year, everybody was looking at, the big guns were looking at each other, Betiol was able to surprise everybody because nobody expected it to come from Betiol's corner, I think. Even if e was great for him that year, he was still an outsider for RVV. And this year, despite winning it last year, he's being seen as a clear outsider. And if they don't watch out, he's going to surprise them again because he is in good form. And... Yeah, it depends on how Wout van Aert and, and Van der Poel deal with it. I don't think he's going to get away on attacking on an Aduquaramund or something versus a, a Van Aert or, an, or a Van der Poel. I think that Van Aert and Van der Poel are clearly going to be the two riders that light things up. But if they don't watch out and they cross the last Paterberg with Wout van Aert and Van der Poel and there's again three riders with them or two riders with them, then there's going to be someone that's going to try and attack in the final 14 kilometers on the flat section. And they might just be surprised in a similar way that they were at Gent Wevelgem, where they're both watching at each other. And they're like, no, you need to close it down. No, you need to close it down. <laughs> and then the gap doesn't get closed down and someone else wins again. So it's going to be very interesting how Van Aert and Van der Poel deal with closing down gaps if they're in the same small group. I don't know how Van der Poel's going to ride tomorrow. If he rides the same way he normally rides, I think he has a very low probability of winning. And I think his odds are too short, to be honest. I don't I don't see how you can put him as the same odds as Van Aert for Ronde van Vlaanderen. I know he did well in a weaker field in a similar sort of parkour at Bink Bank Tour, and I know he's won Droise Tour of Vlaanderen in 2019, but Van der Poel's never beaten or looked that good. No, sorry, he's looked good, but he's never beaten the big guns in a Cobble Classic. Uh, Amstel Gold Race is a bit different, more, more of an Ardennes-style race. I think Van Aert has to be the clear favourite over Van der Poel. I think Van Aert's a smarter racer. I think Van Aert's going to ride this the way he rode Milano San Remo, where he did nothing, did nothing, did nothing, because that's what you have to do in Milano San Remo, waited for the Alaphilippe move, followed, just tried to follow, you know, stay with him, 
as much as possible, got to the flat, TT mode, and then beat him in the sprint. And I think Van Aert will be happy to do a similar thing with Alaphilippe tomorrow. Why wouldn't he? And I think Alaphilippe is going to sit on him a lot. So that could be, it'll be interesting to see whether Van Aert is going to be happy pulling Alaphilippe to the line. But Van Aert's got the best engine probably of these guys as well in terms of, okay, if he gets a gap over the top of Paterberg, can who can hold it? Like Cancelar, like when Cancelar went clear over the top of the final climb or, or over the top of the second last climb, a five-second gap was enough, and it didn't matter who was chasing. Quickstep were chasing behind him. He, it, was, it was done. And Van Aert's not that level of engine as Cancelar, but he's pretty damn close, and... That's why I think he should be the favourite tomorrow. He's my pick for tomorrow. He's, he's the, it's not a, I'm not a genius to pick him, but I, I really I really like Van Aert for tomorrow. Um, maybe, as you said, Benji, that it's heavy lies the crown where everyone's going to be looking at him. But the thing is, it's not like Hen Vavelhem where it's a, a very flat race compared to Tour of Flanders and Mads Pedersen's getting over the climbs really quite easily compared to Van Aert and Pedersen also did the same strategy in Babelham where he went up the road in a break so that he could get caught. Um, the problem, I guess, for Jumbo Visma is that their team is okay. Like, what would you say their team strength is, Benji? Enkorn, Grundal Janssen, Tycho van der Horn, Rosen, Lindemann, Van Aert. Is that just okay um, for Jumbo Visma or is it actually quite good? I think it's okay. Tönnesen is not on the list here. That was the strongest rider next to Van Aert. In Gendwevelham, I don't know what the reason is that Turnison is out, but I heard that this morning. So he's not on the start list for them, which loses a bit of strength for the team itself. Ankorn is a good rider, but I think it's his first RVV, so most likely won't be super easy for him to just be up there with the big guns. And there's plenty of action before the last time out of Quartermont and Paterberg, so the group can have already thinned down. And Janssen has a good history, but yeah, I'm always questioning people who are leaving the team if they're still having the same loyalty and kind of strength with helping others in their team to which they are leaving. So I always wonder that. If Imagine if you're in the team of Jumbo right now and you are going to Alpecin next year. Are you going to close down Vanderpool while you're at Jumbo? Or are you going to subtly keep some energy back and hope that Vanderpool ends up taking the stage. <laughs> I'd, I'd close him down because I'd want that bonus uh, if my teammate won. But um, maybe <laughs> I care about money too much. I think <laughs> EF Pro Cycling have a pretty solid team. Kirkleary, Langeveld, Jonas Ruch, Bessier, pretty Van Mark supporting Betty All maybe. Pretty strong team like all around, I'd say. Stronger than Dumbo Visma. But I want to ask, what do you think... Alaphilippe's strategy is going to be. We saw it in Brabantje Pale. It was just attack early and often. Do you think he's going to do that tomorrow? Because I think he will. Because that's his way, really, of winning the race. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like last year we saw that Van Marco was really helping Betiol, but he crashed out the weeks before in one of the other cobble stations. And all... Yeah, wasn't really on top form in the Tour of Flanders. And because of that, was maybe a bit unsure about his own form compared to the competitors and chose to work for Betiol. I think that this year they're going to be working together and won't have a clear leadership until it's very clear in the race that someone is better. And maybe the race gets decided by a group that has a bit 
too much of a gap. And because of that, one of the two is left behind and you're not going to have a situation where one can help the other. So I think that this race might play out more technical or more tactical than we are guessing right now, because right now we're kind of thinking of this race being decided on, or at least I was decided on the last two hills, which it was last year. And maybe that's just last year rubbing off too much on me. I think that Thunderpool will probably try and go early again. And if that happens, then we're most likely going to see a smaller group going towards these last two hills. And therefore, that could have one of the EF riders in the front and maybe one miss the gap. So I think that in general, it's a very good team surrounding Betjol and Vermarkado. Bissiger, I'm looking forward to see what he can do in this race. But this race could play out so many ways. And considering it's the last race of the season, people could try and go early and YOLO it, or they could wait as long as possible to try and have as much of an assurance that they are getting with the front guys. So it's a bit of a two-way street. And yeah, I don't know. But I'd love to take a look at Ajazer for a second. We've got Oliver Nassen, Lawrence Nassen, Dillier, Duval, Goujar, Van der Merck, Bardet. Bardet on the start list of Tour of Flanders. I would never have guessed it, genuinely. But he was good at Paitou. So I'm expecting him to be worth something but I'm not sure how much, <laughs> genuinely. This is the team that will get Van Avermaet next year and some other strengths, the Wolf and so forth, also joining the team. So a stronger cobble team next year, but we were speaking about it a few months ago as if it would be the yeah, the new summoning of a new god, god team, a new the Koenig team on the cobbles. But if I look at it now, I feel like Van Avermaet is not looking to ride the last year and a half on cobble sections. He won the virtual RVV, but that won't gain him, gain him anything. Van Avermaet is not at the start here due to the injury. I don't know. That team right now doesn't feel strong enough to bring an Oliver Narsen to the victory. And I feel like Oliver Narsen himself is not at the level where he needs to be to be a Van der Poel or a Van Aert. So I think the best thing he can hope for here is potentially a top five. And outside of that, it's going to be a tough one for Ajazer because their riders are decent on couples, but they're not on the level of basically a whole De Koenig team who has Alaphilippe as their leader here, Asgren here, De Klerk, Devenens, Lampard, Seneschal and Stibar. I'd say that we can say five of those riders are at least leader-worthy in a team in Cobble races. Alaphilippe, Asgren, Seneschal, Stibar and Lampard. That's five, right? Yes, that's five <laughs> out of seven. De Klerk going to be the all-out god on the Cobbles when it comes to working fodders, most likely. And Dave and is most likely domestique as well, but Alaphilippe has never done RVV before. Does he have cobble experience? Brabant Sapel. I don't know if there's more than that. Do you believe that Alaphilippe is good enough to make something out of the Tour of Flanders or not? Well, he, he's about equal third favorite with Pedersen. I don't think so. Um, he doesn't really work very well in breaks. He kind of dooms the breakaways that he is in. So he's... Look at Amstel Gold Race with Full Sang, and you look at yeah Liège or whatever the breakways he's in. It just doesn't work that well. So say he gets in a break with another rider or two in the last twenty k's after the Paderberg, well, I'm not convinced they're going to be able to stay away from the, the riders chasing behind. And he's for when he's in a group with GC guys, 
really, really good sprint. But compared to Trentin, Pedersen, Van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel, Seneschal, he's not as good a sprinter as them from a full bunch. So I don't really see a way Alaphilippe wins Tour of Flanders uh, tomorrow just because this is one of the strongest start lists in recent history. You have to watch tomorrow because the level is just insane. Having someone like Seneschal, guess what odds Seneschal is, Benji? Came second in Hen Vevelhem. Guess what odds he is? Oh, 14? I don't know, something like that. 55 on Betfair. What? Yep. Oh, that's my I don't dark, think so. That, that's my dark horse. Yeah, but... Oh, to be honest, I think that Seneschal is really good for a Paris-Roubaix. And I think that was his main goal of the season. He was really training for that, reconning that, and that is taken away from him. So he has to do it on Tour of Flanders now. I don't think Seneschal is as good as the others on the hills. But if he can somehow make it over those hills with those groups, he's definitely one of the better ones in the sprint. Obviously, Van Aert as well. Van der Poel, also decent. Yeah, my argument is dug on because I was going to say he could sprint against them, but everybody can sprint these days in color races. So <laughs> it's a real difference because in the past you had riders that just blatantly couldn't sprint as much. But we've seen before that riders who do cobble races are more and more likely to end up being decent sprinters as well. We've seen that over the years. And that started for me with Ken Shalara in the past, who at the start of his career was not a great sprinter. And the more times we saw him sprint in races like this, Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders, we'd have him do better and better over the years and end up winning full four-man sprints and such at the end of his career. So, yeah, it, it, it's special. It's It's a bit of a combination, I think. And therefore, you've got plenty of riders who can do both, except for potentially Stefan Kuhn, who can't. <laughs> He's one of those riders that I also am not sure whether he can really do well here, except for doing something along the lines of what Peterson and Van Barley did in 2018 by launching early and gaining time on the others before we get to those bugs in the end. Then he could stick up there and be worth something. But if he can actually win Tour of Flanders, I think not. Let's cut to the chase. Who's your pick to win and who's... I, I want to hear your dark horse. I'll let you have two dark horses too. I'm going to start with my favorite and then I'll give you some time to think about your favorite because then I'll think about what my dark time. horse is. Okay. My main favorite is the Belgian, Wout van Aert. I have to. I just have to. And I Legally. feel like... You I legally have to. I live in West Flanders, West Flams. <laughs> That's the language. the language. It's West Flanders. <laughs> okay. Anyway, when it comes to my dark horses, and I think I've got money on him for it, Nils Ekov. He's one of my dark horses. I think you're probably going to say Søren Kranderson, but I'll, I'll let you in a second. I think my second dark horse is going to be... Oof. That's a really tough one. I'm going to give it to you first, then you come back to me afterwards for my second Dark Horse. My pick is Wild Art. Also, Soren Kranerson not getting enough respect. Remember what happened? Who was chasing Van der Poel, the only man really chasing him properly in Big Bang Tour? Soren Kranerson. So he's got a good engine. He's in magic form. It's He has to go early, though, and probably try and get a gap because um, he's not going to beat these guys in a sprint. But yeah, he's a. So I wouldn't. If you saw him on the podium, I would not be surprised at all. But my dark horses are, yeah, Seneschal, 
might be a little bit hard for him, but still, if it's a reduced bunch, wouldn't be surprised to see him up there. And Kwiatkowski, maybe we'll see what legs Kwiatkowski has. You can never never count him out, but he's a he's a very very long odds. Um, but yeah, I like Soren Kranison. I like Soren Kranison more than Kwiatkowski. If I'm if I'm being honest. Okay, I've got an extreme dark horse that is having no possibility of winning, but I just want to see him ride once again. And it might be his last race. We don't know yet. But let's put some money on Mark Cavendish just for the funs of it. For the memes, he's going to be in the breakaway. That's my dark horse for the breakaway. Mark Cavendish. I mean, yeah, he might get in the breakaway, but I don't enjoy <laughs> setting money on fire, so I'm not going to be betting on him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Like Apparently, Lefebvre was saying they might he, he might talk with him and sign him. I don't think that's happening. Um, yeah, it would be against their their usual strategy of signing riders that are promising in the future. Oh, no, and... they pay him no money. Well, really? <laughs> yeah, they pay him. No, no, I'm being serious. They literally pay him zero, and he just may, if he wins anything, he'd get a bonus. <laughs> okay, that's pretty lame as well, to be honest. <laughs> if I was Cavendish, I wouldn't even accept it. <laughs> Pure disrespect. But all in all, he's also not really on the level of competing in the world tour but then again that's for the majority of the world tour riders for me like 50 percent of the world tour riders are on the level of cavendish yet he's the only rider that we bash for not performing because he was a legend in the past so if he was riding as a domestique then people would most likely be like oh he's washed he's washed and i feel like that's a bit unfair just because of the history yeah fair enough um but i'm pretty excited for the tour of Linus tomorrow benji um how is it like a public holiday there like what happens is that they shut down the streets like what is what is the go in, in flanders during tour of flanders like the majority of flanders doesn't give a shit um but that's a lie that's not a lie i'm a, i'm generally serious football is a much better sport as in no that's that's cut that out that's not correct football is not a much better sport football is a more popular sport in belgium and just got to point that out for the people that are watching this from countries with a mediocre language. Football means soccer in your language. But all in all, cycling is very popular in Belgium, but it's also still niche to the people that watch cycling. And then there's the people that say, who the fuck would ride on a spandex on a bike? But those are also just people that don't have a culture so in the end there's the majority of people that know what cycling is and know who's roughly doing well but there's also a very big margin of people that just hate the sport so i think that you're a bit overrating it as a national holiday because i think that the majority of people are still doing other stuff throughout the day as well and don't watch sports as much as we do and um they don't close off the other streets except for the ones where they need to close it off. So it's not that every street is just out of cars and every time everyone's riding their bikes, then we don't have uh, good enough roads for that. But yeah, I feel like in general, it is a holiday for me. And I'm happy that I've got the next nine days of work that I can summon myself into a real cycling week. And I'm looking forward to doing so because the Tour of Flanders is always one of the days in the season. It feels a bit weird that it's at the end now and during the Giro because it loses hype for me. I genuinely feel like it's a normal, blatant 
classic at the moment and not that it's a tour of flanders tomorrow so i feel like we're lacking a bit of hype because it's during all these all these grand tours that i'm generally more hyped for the giro than the tour of flanders because of it and that's a fucking shame because nah, otherwise that's, that's I, just wrong though nah it's not i'm generally more hyped <laughs> for the giro right now and that's that that's horrible <laughs> and, okay but normally in a normal year, we would have this would be a standalone podcast for the Tour yeah. of Flanders preview because it would be on a Saturday and we'd maybe do this on the Wednesday uh, as its own podcast in between other races. So it's actually obviously not possible <laughs> right now <laughs> with this calendar. But move, yeah. we're going to move on to the women's race now. Everyone in Belgium, look up Boxing Day Test Match. That's how you have a proper national institution, uh, a bit of Australian <laughs> history for you. But the women's. Tour of Flanders, 135Ks, starts and finishes in Oudenaar, so it doesn't start in Antwerp like the men's race. It's pretty much flat for the first 50Ks, and then they have all the same climbs, really. Katerberg, uh, Erlar, Leiberg, Berendries, Canaryberg, which is probably the hardest climb, Tienberg. Um, I'd say the Canaryberg is one of the hardest of the day, as well as the Paterberg, and then the Aldequan. The finale is very similar, right, Scott? All those climbs, Kreisberg, etc., and then in the last twenty k's, they got the Odequarmont and then the Paterberg back to back, just like in the men's finale. And then it's fourteen k's flat to the finish. Um, so pretty similar. Called the same race. Flanders Classics does a pretty good job with the uh, women's with the women's races, and I think Hanvevelgen was was testament to that. I think that was pretty. Pretty solid from them. But moving on to the favourites, Anna van der Breggen, who wasn't at Hemvevelgem, she's racing, as well as the notable addition of Annemiek van Vleuten. And, yeah, those two weren't there. And they had a bit of a rest for Brabantje Pale, etc. So we're talking about a lot of riders like Grace Brown, who did well in Liège, and she won Brabantje Pale, didn't she? Well... How is she going to go now with Van Vleuten back on her team? We've got the we've got Lotta Kopecky here, who obviously just won. Uh, I wouldn't know. She got beaten in Hanfable That's right. It was Julian Dor for Bowles Dolmans who won that race. So Lotta Sudal women's have got a pretty strong team with those two. Kopecky, oh no, just Kopecky, sorry. Belgian national champion. <sighs> I don't know what's going to happen with the sprinters, Julian Dor and Lotte Kopecky, Benji. I think it's just going to be too hard for them. And I think you've got riders like Van der Breggen and Van Vleuten that can TT and Longa Borghini, who's happy to make it hard with Van Dyke. It's not going to be as easy as Han Vavelhem. I think it's going to be too hard for those two sprinters. And um, it really is going to be, yeah, all those favourites that we're normally used to seeing. Coron Rivera at Sunweb. She's actually won Tour of Flanders, I think, back in 2017. But I think she'll be riding for Liana Lippert on their team, the young Germans. So I don't even think she'll be riding for her own ambitions. Lisa Brenauer, wouldn't be surprised at uh, Kera Tizit, WNT Pro Cycling. German rider, she could do pretty well here as well. Cecily Utrup Ludwig, so close in a lot of races this season. She won Giro de Emilia, but she hasn't beaten the big guns in any race yet this season, I don't think. Can she do well in Flanders, which I think should suit her, actually. Uh, she came second in flesh, but that's an easier race than Flanders. She's one of the race favourites. 
I'm trying to see who I'm missing. Lizzie Diagon, obviously, she's in magic form. She won La Course. She won Liège, Baston Liège, fourth in Flesh, won a, um, came second in a stage at the Giro, uh, Giro Rosa, stage seven. And I think that was a pretty, eh, that was like a sprint behind Lotta Capecchi. I don't think uh, Mariana Voss is racing here. She's out Mariana Voss. So I think she's got a non-COVID illness. So they've confirmed CCC like she's sick, but it's not it's not coronavirus. Um, and another omission is Nui Adoma's not here for Canyon Shram Racing. Um, so it's it's pretty much all the main, the big riders that we're used to seeing. Last year, Marta Bastianelli won, the Italian, uh, which I don't think that's going to be, I'm not sure it's going to be that sort of race uh, this year. I think she won from, from a pretty big, from a sprint, from a group. Same with Corin Rivera won from a sprint. From a group, um, Bastianelli beat Van Vleuten and Ludwig, that group. I think when Rivera won in 17, it was even a bigger group. I'm not sure she's at the level right now to, um, yeah, to make it. And she's not, sorry, she's not even racing because I think her team pulled out for for COVID, unfortunately. I'm trying to remember all the news. Um, but, yeah, it's Van der Breggen won in 2018, Dagen in 2016, Longo Borghini in 15, Van Vleuten all the way back in 2011. How do you how do you see the race playing out, Benji? Do you think Trek are going to be happy working, say, with the Van Vleuten and Ludwig to make this way too hard for Julian Dor and Lotta Capecchi? Or do you think they'll be too worried about maybe setting up Van Vleuten and Van der Breggen going from afar? I think we've seen quite a few times already in the last couple of weeks in women's races where there's a group that gets in front and has riders from quite a few, quite a number of the teams that have favorites here. And because of that, we see the peloton actually being deactivated that way. Now, the last time that happened, I think Ludwig was not in the front group, nor did she have teammates up there. So she's got to watch out that her team doesn't miss any splits like that. And I think that I noticed now that Bulls Dormans only has five riders signed up for this, so I think they'll have a harder time controlling the race that way. I do not know what the reason is. Or it could be that the start list is wrong, but there's five riders in their team compared to the others having six, all of them. So that's odd. Nonetheless, I think that there's a difference between some riders in the sense that some riders can get over the last bump and can still sprint in a group of four or five. And there's riders that can't do that. If I look at, for example, Ludwig, that got third last year, I think, on the Tour of Flanders women's race, she needs to get alone over the last two climbs. And I don't think she's in the form this year to act like that. Van der Breggen, I think, has the ability of dropping everybody on, on these bags. So I think that if anyone wants to beat Van der Breggen, they either need to get in front by a group that has a rider from Bulls Dormans, maybe Amy Peters or something, in that group and get rid of them afterwards. Or they got to find a way to stick with her and beat her in the sprint. But that's going to be hard. So I'm looking more towards an early group that rides away, that potentially deactivates a portion of the riders that are starting this race. And if I do that, then I'm pointing at a Grace Brown who 
to me doesn't seem like a rider who would be able to follow Van der Bregen if she launches fully on the Paterberg. But on the other end, if she has an advantage, she can keep that and try and survive on the Paterberg while Van der Bregen attacks from behind. Van der Bregen, not Van der Bregen. <laughs> I'm confusing her with uh, Rick Verbrugge, the Belgian head coach. <laughs> anyway, um, I feel like Van der Bregen has a bit of an advantage that way. Van der Breggen also has Jolien Dore, so she could be the rider that is in the group behind while Van der Breggen does random stuff, so that if it doesn't end up going successfully, then in a group sprint, Jolien Dore could still try and finish it off, and that could be against a lot of Kopecky or something. Kopecky seemed a bit weaker on the cobble sections, if I recall correctly, on the end of him. She always moved to the back of the group every time, and... Maybe that's also why she ended up losing the race, because the cobble sections just hit her too hard. It seems like she wasn't at her full force on the Kemmelberg, on the Hendwebelhem. So I'm not sure Kopecky is going to be fighting for it on this one. But as a Belgian, I'd be happy if she wins. But I'm saying that if von der Bregen is in the front group, in the elite group, before the last Bergs, then I think she's going to be winning the race, or she could launch early and do it that way. For me, she's the favorite here. But I gotta keep in mind that it could go any other way. They could they could have a small group up front that just that just deactivates von der Bregen and the rest of the Peloton. So I'm gonna say von der Bregen is my all-out favorite. I'm gonna call Ludwig as my second favorite, but she'd have to drop everybody on the part of it, which I don't see happening. So she's most likely going to survive on the part of it and just lose the sprint to the other people like she did last year then. And I think that's the two riders I am looking at. Do you expect something from Von Vleuten here, or do you feel like either the terrain doesn't suit her, or she might not be back in full form yet? And speaking of flesh, the only other rider that I think is a genuine dark horse who I think has a chance of winning is Demi Vollering on Park Hotel Volkenberg. She was the only rider that tried to attack Anna van der Breggen on Flesh on the Moor, and she did a pretty good job there. She came third just behind Cecily Utrup Ludwig, who came second, and she's a good climber. She's come third, I think, in Liège. She won Giro dell'Emilia. And if van der Breggen makes this race about the climbing, I think Volering can do a pretty good job, and she's got a decent sprint too. So, yeah, she's, she's I think, a real chance of getting a good result here. She's in good form, not the strongest team, but... Just really good results the last two years in races like Liège, Flesch and the course where Van der Breggen and Van Leuten have been have been dominant. And she's 23. She's still improving. She showed in Flesch that she is at that level. So I think it's possible that she could win and go clear with maybe Ultra Bloodwig and Van der Breggen again. But we will see on the part of her. I'm pretty keen to see, see the women's race in the Tour of Flanders. Have you got any, any dark horses uh, for tomorrow for the women's race, Benji? Uh, not really, but I just hope that we see aggressive action, like you said, from Trexi Gafredo. They've got multiple riders that can act on this level, and I just hope that both the combination of Lizia and Longoborghini could bring something great. If, for example, it's an elite group where both of them are still there, then they could try and play the 1-2 and try and get away that way. But yeah, I feel like... If those two are in a, a lead group together, then there's probably more riders from Bulls Dormans there as well. And there's probably more riders from other teams with strong riders as well. So uh, it's going to be hard. But 
I think, yeah, that's basically what I've got today because I don't know. I feel like Longoborghini is a name I want to put up there as well, but I she she won this race in 2015, 2014, something like that. But ever since then, she hasn't really been up there. And yeah, I agree that she's not on the best form. She was good at the World Championships, but also not good enough to follow Van der Breggen. So I just think that it's blatantly going to be Van der Breggen riding away on the last Paterberg or one of the earlier Paterbergs on TTing for the rest of the race. But that's all from us today on the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Tour of Flanders preview. Make sure you go and watch the race tomorrow as well as our wrap-up of the Giro d'Italia Stage 14 ITT and the preview of Stage 15 tomorrow. Brought to you by Lacole for our Giro podcast series for the whole of the Giro. But we'll be seeing you tomorrow. Big day. It's going to be a big pod tomorrow. Hopefully there's a lot of action in the Tour of Flanders. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 